Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 9 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is The Lives and Witness of the New Martyrs, 1928-1938. This podcast was originally recorded in July of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. Welcome back to Russian New Martyrs in the Catacomb Church. Lesson 9. God bless you. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. This is 9 of 10. We're almost finished two weeks to go. And we'll be wrapping up with our conclusions next week. We're going to be giving you not only our own conclusions, of course, but the wisdom of contemporaries about what the significance of the New Martyrs in the Catacomb Church is for the Church today. But tonight we're going to be looking at excerpts, as we can do in a short amount of time, from lives, a variety of lives, hopefully giving you a good picture of church life post-28, up until the war. Uh, it's hit and miss. We don't have all the details, of course. We have a lot of interesting stories, which give us a peek into what the Christians in the under the Soviet yoke, we're experiencing what we're looking at tonight. We'll look at some videos and some some uh, excerpts from lives of the saints. Uh, it goes without saying, however, that this is, can only be uh, a piecemeal uh, attempt here and there, hit and miss. And really, what everyone has to do is get this book, download it. Let's see if we can get it on the Russia's Catacomb Saints. This is required reading at your bed stand every evening along with the Synaxarian of the lives of the, uh, of the day, of the whole year. Uh, these, a lot of these lives you're not going to find in uh, many of the collections of lives of the saints because they're uh, fairly new and they didn't make them into the publications, etc. But <clears throat> you can get these downloaded, printed out, uh, bind it and have it as a part of your spiritual food every day. It's my high, my strong suggestion because we're only going to be hitting and missing here. This cannot do justice to what this book has. And of course, there are many other books that have also been published that are mostly out of print. You can find online in PDFs uh, that also recount the lives of the new martyrs. So, so important for the church. And it is one of the glaring uh, what, what can we say? What are the, what are the, the missing parts of the life of the church today that we're not, all of us globally are not reading and studying the lives of the new martyrs. I think it's a, a, a tragedy, the church, because if we had them front and center in our lives, <clears throat> I think we would have a very different understanding of what's going on in the world today. And that's why we're doing this course today. So let's get our, let's start with our prayers. And, We'll jump into the content. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind and the understanding of thy gospel teachings and bless us with fear of thy blessed commandments and trample down all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory. For the fathers of everlasting, the holy good life, praying spirit, will now endeavor unto ages of ages. Amen. Evlogito si Christeo, Theo Simon, O Pansophus, to Salis Anadixas, Tanta Pemsas Aftis to Que di afton tiniku meni saginesas filantrope donchasis. Amen. So we're in lesson nine, as we said, and as usual. We have this to remind us why, one of the reasons why we're doing this course. Again, the prophecy uttered some 70 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. Today in Russia, tomorrow in America. And now we can say yesterday in Russia, today in America, perhaps today all over the world with the increased totalitarianism and the threat of taking away of personal liberty that is increasing through the uh, various COVID attempts at uh, control of society. So now we're at Lesson 9, The Life and Witness of the New Martyrs, 1928 to 1938. Now, just to remind ourselves what's going on historically before we get into the lives, uh, it's important to just sink in, let's sink in the, 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 the degree of destruction and, and persecution that the church was facing in Russia and throughout all the Soviet uh, satellite states, eventually through 1940s and 50s when they uh, went into other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, many of its members were killed or sent to labor camps. Between 27 and 40, 1927 and 40, the number of Orthodox churches in Russia Russian Republic fell from 29,584 to fewer than 500 in 13 year span. 29,000 churches were destroyed. It's just, uh, it's, it's rather uh, unfathomable. And in fact, if you go back to the pre revolution, that number was at 50,000. So in a span of 20 years, 23 years, 49,500 churches were destroyed in the Russian uh, Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union, but Russia, Ukraine, and other places. 1929, Soviet policy put much new legislation in place that formed the basis of the harsh anti-religious persecution in the 1930s. Uh, so by 1940, 
there were only about two or 300 active parishes in the entire vast Soviet Union. Just, it's just, it's, it's um, unfathomable, the, the, the degree of destruction that the church saw there. Uh, but that's not just in churches. It's in human beings as well. And this is important to understand that the 30s saw unbelievable bloodshed and the loss of life through a concerted effort of persecution year after year after year throughout the whole decade, from 28 to 38 to 39, 40, really until the war when things started to let up a bit. But things had already been so destroyed at that point that there was very, very little left to be saved in terms of exterior, the exterior life of the church. The mass closure of churches continued until 39, by which time there was only a few hundred left. We said that. According to the official data of the Government Commission on Rehabilitation, in 1937, 136,900 Orthodox clerics, probably including monks, my guess, were arrested. 85,000 of them, well over half, were shot in 1937. In 28,000 were arrested, 21,000 were shot. So in those two years, over 100,000, 106,000 monks, priests, bishops, maybe even nuns, I'm not sure how they're counting, were executed, were, were killed, were, died for their faith. They're martyrs in heaven, praying for us, poor ones at the end of history. In 1939, 1,500 arrested, 900 of them shot, and in 40, 5,000 arrested, 1,100 of them shot. So you can see the numbers went down because, well, there wasn't many left to arrest and to shoot after so many years of persecution. Of course, most of those, the vast, vast majority of those, we don't know. We have not been able to learn of their exact fate, how they ended this life. Uh, and so there are, there's a whole cloud of witnesses, a whole cloud of witnesses that are in heaven that we don't know. We know a few. Here are some of them we've been commemorating for the last nine weeks, the ones who played an important role in the Orthodox Church's resistance to communism, to atheism, but also to uh, renovationism and uh Sergianism, eventually, the church had to face that tragic development with Patriarch, or rather, Metropolitan Sergius. And these are the major figures. The first, Some of the first martyrs, like Vladimir of Kiev up in the left-hand corner, or Benjamin of St. Petersburg on the right-hand corner, St. Tikhon with the staff, and Metropolitan Joseph of St. Petersburg, or St. Cyril in the left-hand corner, or St. Peter in the right-hand corner bottom, St. Damascene next to him, and Agathangelos, and Victor, and the new martyr, uh, the, the royal martyrs, and the list goes on. These are just a few of the many, many martyrs. We haven't even commemorated many of the um, monastics, such as St. Elizabeth and others. There's, there's just not time. We're focusing on, of course, not just lives of the saints, but we've been focusing on questions of ecclesiastical Phronima, uh, the outlook, the orthodox understanding of things, the question of the surges, 
uh, declaration, all the rest. So our time has not been devoted simply to the lives of the saints, but they could, we could literally do weeks and weeks and weeks of uh, just reading the lives of the saints. And so again, I point you to the, to the, to the catacomb saints, Russia's catacomb saints, but Father Seraphim and I, Ivan Andreev as a essential takeaway from this course. If you do not end up having that as a part of your reading list, well, then I think I failed my, my, uh, goal here. Uh, if that does not become a part of your daily spiritual food, then I, I think I've failed. So, so don't, don't uh, allow that to happen. Make that a part of your daily, daily life. So this is a, a general register, just to give you a little bit of a, this is from uh, Russia's New Martyrs, another book. And this is probably Incomplete, of course, uh, but it's a, uh, for the most part, what, what we knew back in, I think, as, I guess it would have been the 80s or 70s when this book was published. I'm not sure the publication, original publication date. But this gives you just some of the bishops, the episcopate, uh, and it's in chronological order. And so I've put this in here because some of you will be downloading the PDF. You won't have access to see. You can, uh, if you're wondering about a particular bishop that you've read about, but you're not sure when he died or where he died or where he was a bishop. Uh, this list should be helpful, but it also gives us a little sense uh, that how just how many bishops uh, were martyred uh, from 1918 on, and some of them outright were martyred because they refused to follow the Declaration of Metropolitan Surges in 1927. For instance, Bishop Yerothios. Shot in the head during his arrest when the crowd tried to defend him. He was arrested for refusal to obey Metropolitan Surges of Moscow and his order to pray for the Soviet government. Uh, just one example. But many of them post-27, from this point on, uh, they were arrested for not conforming to Metropolitan Surges' declaration. That became a Litmus test, if you are with us or against us for the Soviets. Metropolitan Joseph, of course, the famous Metropolitan St. Petersburg, shot to death in 38 for encouraging secret wandering clergy. In other words, the catacomb church. Archbishop Dimitri, the same, his, his uh, assistant bishop there. Uh, bishop Damascene, we've heard a lot from over the last couple of weeks here, 1935. Uh, we've talked about them. We haven't talked about their, how they ended their lives. And so this is why I'm mentioning some of this here. Uh, these were all eventually executed martyred. Metropolitan Cyril, Kirill, Pezan, of course, died in exile in 36. And uh, somewhere here is Metro, Metropolitan Peter. It was local tenants in 36. Uh, or 37. I'm, I'm not sure if that's an accurate, actually accurate. Uh and the list goes on. Here, what is interesting is they commemorate some of those who, who, who turned away from Christ. At least one of them I wanted to commemorate here in yellow. I think it's important to realize that there's always going to be, perhaps in our day there will be many, who are not able to confess. And they succumb to the temptations of the, and the pressures of the enemy and the fear of death. In this particular case, Bishop Theophilos of Kuban and Ekaterinodar, with the request of the GPU, turned in a list of names of all the secret monks of his diocese. 
And when these were arrested, the bishop hung himself. This is a, a particular disciple of Christ in the scriptures, a tragic, tragic thing, 1930. So there, it's good to remember that there are those who succumb, and they're not all, uh, of course, confessors of the faith. And in fact, there are many who obviously we're not commemorating here who succumb to the temptations. And the temptations were amazing and massive. So bishops who were in prison and then freed by the communists and put in exile, they found themselves in a helpless position and were forced to recognize the government church, but were completely destroyed in the reprisals in the reprisals of 37. So many who found their death in 1937, perhaps they were those who were in prison, then came back and commemorated Metropolitan Sergius or succumbed to working with the, the secret police. It's hard to say there's a mixed bag, but even those were not spared by the steamroller of the Soviet powers. Now let's look at just a few incidents to give a sense. This is obviously just a, uh, a snapshot, and but it is indicative, and I think there are other core, other examples which we just don't know. I think there are probably many examples which we don't know. We're never going to learn, and these are given so that we understand a little bit about the life there. Now this is actually the close to the great Metropolitan Joseph of uh, of Saint Petersburg. Uh, his uh, disciples in his his life in exile and the secret church that they built there. In August of 1936, this is now almost a decade after he was removed from his diocese and exiled. In Alma Alta, very uh, far from Moscow, Central Asia, there was living the comparatively young Archimandrite Arsenios, and the person writing this, who's giving us this, this account, says, From him I found out for the first time that there exists a secret catacomb church headed by Metropolitan Joseph of Petrograd. Organized by him with the blessing of Metropolitan Peter of Krutitsk, Krutitsk, if I'm saying that right, with whom he, while being in banishment in Chemkent, 100 miles from Alma Alta, had secret contact all the time. Our commandrite Arsenios was ordained uh, to the Met by the Metropolitan and had a good had the good fortune to support him materially, earning his living by the manufacture of various kinds of mannequins and small articles for museums. So the Archimandrite uh, was working a full time job and had a secret life as an Archimandrite and and at a church in secret. He had a church deep down underground, and he and Metropolitan Joseph served in it. Metropolitan had also consecrated it secretly on one of his rare trips to Alma Alta. Alma Alta. Father Senios had dug out this church by great and long labors. The church dug out of the earth was in the apartment of Archimandrite Arsenios. The entrance was a trapdoor covered by a carpet. The top was taken off, and under it was a ladder to the cellar. In one corner of the cellar, there was an opening in the earth, which was covered with rocks. The rocks were moved aside, and bending down completely, one had to crawl three steps forward 
and there was the entrance to the tiny church. There were many icons, and lamps were burning. Which, while Joseph was very tall, and nonetheless, twice in my presence, he traveled here secretly and penetrated to this church. <laughs> Interesting the term they use, penetrated. Sounds like that's pretty much what you had to do to crawl on your uh, on your belly to get into this church underground in a cellar. So in the cellar and then further down into the ground. You can imagine a tall metropolitan, what he, uh, what he had to go through to just get into the church, a tiny church. A remarkable state of mind and soul was created by this church. But I do not hide the fact that the fear of being discovered during the services, especially at night, was difficult to conquer. When the big chained dog began to bark in the yard, even though it was muffled, still it was audible underground. Then everyone expected the cry and the knock of the GPU. For the whole of 1936 and until September in 1937, everything was all right. My son, my son sang here together with one nun. And on August 26th, Metropolitan Joseph came and honored us with a visit on my name's day. So I don't, I'm not going to go on to the whole uh, recounting. I'm just going to leave it there. I wanted to give you a sense of the church and what kind of conditions existed. Uh, but the story goes on, of course. And not long after that, uh, Archimandrite Archimand Arsenios had, had left, had, 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 had given his secret to a venerable older man who he thought was a pious Christian, turned out to be an agent of the secret police. And they discovered the church, and of course, they rested and sent Arsenios uh, to the Gulag and, and, and others with him. And so that was just a brief period of a few years until that was discovered, and this was the fate of, of many, unfortunately. But this is, what they, this is the lengths they had to go to just to serve divine liturgy and, and to avoid the oversight of the... Uh, the authorities. Uh, again, another short excerpt from a life. You can find this also online at a wonderful website, catacombhistory.blogspot. Write that down, uh, catacombhistory.blogspot.com. Uh, now, there you can find many of the stories that we're going to talk about tonight. And this is uh, also connected, and this, the, the videos from this site are also been uploaded to uh, the internet. So the things we're going to show you tonight are also available through uh, the uh, Gregory Decapoliti site. Uh, but this is actually an excerpt from the Catacomb Saints, the book that I'm telling you you need to acquire and have at your bedside. Uh, and I'm only going to do a little bit from the life. It's uh, very interesting and exciting. I think what it drew me to Father Nicholas, uh, the higher martyr Seraphim, he became a higher monk while he was in prison, uh, is that he reminds me actually of some contemporary Greek priests who are, uh, who in many ways, have large spiritual gatherings, followings, have spiritual gifts. Um, they're, they're, the church is, has never been bereft of such virtuous priests in the world. Uh, and there's actually three volumes of ascetics in the world. It's called it one volume, maybe two has been translated into English. There's now a third that came out 
year or two ago, and his lives of many of many such uh, righteous 20th century uh, Greek Orthodox priests, unknown to many, many people. Unfortunately, because of the grave secularization uh, in many parts of the Western world, uh, in the, among, the, among uh, so, some Greek Orthodox, uh, there's this idea that the, the Greek church generally is very secularized. Whereas in Greece, here in Greece, we, we know and we have access to many virtuous and righteous priests. And Father Nicholas uh, very much reminds me uh, of him. You know, in, in early life, he was uh, not, not interested in studies. He was uh, actually very funny, very, very comedic. He was actually offered a, a, a uh, place to uh, uh, work as a comedian. Uh, so at some point, however, uh, through the prayers of his mother, uh, he turned the corner and became uh, dedicated to Christ. In fact, uh, when the off- offer came, when he was a young man, his mother said, I, will, I want to see you in gold vestments, otherwise I will curse you, she declared to her son. And, of course, her son submitted out of uh, love for God and for her. Uh, but this is the kind of mother that uh, every, every, uh, every, everybody should wish to have. Uh, anyway, he went on to become a priest. He was married to a very virtuous woman, very educated woman, as you see here, and their two children. Uh, but he, in a way, he's he's a he's a wonderful priest. To I think everyone should read the life. Uh, go to the catacombhistory.blogspot.com and read uh, Venerable Confessor Seraphim Zagorsky, Hiramark, Hiramonk of Kharkov, nineteen forty-three. Uh, that was just uploaded in December of last year. Uh, read this life as so many interesting tidbits. I'm going to just give you a few tonight uh, with the hope that it'll really encourage you to go and, and, and read it yourself. Uh, Father Nicholas was, was never went anywhere, only to church. Suddenly a woman came and begged him to give the sacraments to a dying woman. Against all his rules, Father Nicholas got ready and went, taking with him the revered icon of the Mother of God, Searcher of the Lost. In a garret on a bed, garret is uh, is, a, is a basically an, an attic, uh, is a, on a bed, a young woman lay unconscious. Out of her mouth, there flowed a bloody foam. Two children were weeping bitterly. Children, said Father Nicholas, pray to the mother of God. She will hear the prayer of children. He began a malevolent intercession, uh, a supplication service, with an activist before the icon he had brought. Tears flowed in streams down the face of Father Nicholas. He was literally drenched with tears. After the Muleban, he was told, But Batushka, you haven't read the prayers for the departure of the soul. It isn't necessary, he replied. Soon the grateful children came to Father Nicholas and brought him flowers and an embroidered belt such as the clergy used to wear in Russia. After this, the healed woman herself came. Although she had been unconscious during the Muleban, Nonetheless, she had felt how a living power had poured into her. She became a devoted spiritual daughter of Father Nicholas for as long as he lived in St. In St. Petersburg. Uh, he originally was from Kharkov. He was forced to live. He was exiled essentially from Kharkov because he was so popular as a priest. And so now his, this, this was during the time that he was in St. Petersburg. Another story. After he had been in prison in Solovki, uh, he uh, re- returned uh, 
wasn't able to go to Karklov because they forbade that. So looking at a map, he saw that the nearest city to Karklov was Obayan, if I'm saying that right, forgive me, in Kursk province. And so they went on a train and were already approaching their goal. They were telling each other that once they got out of the train, they had no idea what to do. The conversation was overheard by a simply dressed woman who was traveling with them. She turned out to be the wife of a banished priest to whom she was traveling for a visit. Looking closely, she recognized in Father Nicholas's face the face of a priest. She informed her fellow travelers that in Oboyan there was a secret convent. She gave them the address. The travelers went there and rang. The nun gatekeeper opened the door for them, finding out that they were asking shelter for the night. The nun categorically declared to them that this was impossible. They themselves were in hiding, and if they began to allow outsiders in, it would immediately attract attention to them. All the same, tell the abbess about us, Father Nicholas requested. The abbess didn't let them wait for her, but quickly came out and in a friend, friendly manner invited them to share a meal nuns. And what had happened? In the night of their arrival, St. Seraphim of Serov appeared to the abbess in sleep and said, Seraphim of Karklov is coming to you. Receive him. When Batushka heard this, he burst into tears and said, I am Father Nicholas. But in actuality, he had been tonsured in Solovki and was called Seraphim. He did not expect that he would return to the world when he was in prison and that his life would be prolonged and he had accepted secret monasticism. He was a married priest, of course, and he was with his wife, but he thought he would die in prison. And so he accepted tonsure. And of course, no one knew that. And so when St. Seraphim appeared to the abbess and said Seraphim of Kharkov, this was a great sign of the legitimacy of the words and the clairvoyance, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the miraculous uh, ex uh, assistance of St. Seraphim for Father Nicholas. A little bit later in, this, in the life, it talks about the following. I thought this was a very interesting, a good snapshot of the life of this virtuous priest. It did not take long for them to find an apartment in Oboyan, Father Nicholas never went out in the daytime. Only late at night, he went out to breathe some fresh air. He served liturgy every day. The proscomedia, with an endless commemoration of the living and dead, lasted for hours. Sometimes his Kharkov nuns would come to him at night, and thus he guided their secret monastery. So he had actually started before the revolution uh, a monastery, uh, which is very interesting that a, a married priest started a monastery and had many spiritual children. This shows you the ascetic life of the clergy at the time. This idea, this very bad idea that has come to rule in many places of the Orthodox Church, that monasticism over there, far away from the parish priests and the parishes, parishes, and we don't really have much contact, and if you go there, you don't really become spiritual children, and da 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 da, da and we have this anti-monastic spirit that sometimes rules the Orthodox Church in different parts of the world because of ignorance and secularism. Well, here you have a total merging, a, a wedding of the married priest and the monastic life, and it was not at all 
unusual because they all live the same ascetic life. Uh, it, it reminds me of Father uh, Stephanos Anastopoulos in Athens, who was a spiritual father of a women's monastery in uh, in Nafpacto, and still is. Uh, and uh, uh, so another example of a virtuous married priest, he has, I think, seven children, Father Stephanos has seven or eight children, uh, married priest who was a spiritual guide, an elder for a, a women's monastery. So here, another example of this virtuous uh, married priest. Another memorable case of Father Nicholas's clairvoyance. Father Nicholas and Yulasha had to look for a new apartment because a great many people had begun to come to them. They found a fine place. Yulasha was encouraged and said happily, "How wonderful here, Batushka! We'll put your bed and your and here, put your bed here and your table and here the table." And Father Nicholas stood pale and said nothing. Finally, he turned to the landlady, "Tell us what happened here." It turned out that an agent of the secret police had hanged himself there. Of course, they did not rent the place. In 1930, Father Nicholas was arrested for refusing to accept the liberation of Metropolitan Surges and was imprisoned in the house of preliminary confinement in Petersburg. His stay in Petersburg ended on the famous Holy Night, as it was called by the believers of Petersburg, when in a single night in 1932, 5,000 of the most devoted people of the church were arrested. That's in one night in uh, St. Petersburg. Of course, that was one of the centers of the catacomb church at the time. And so many of those were the people attending those non-commemorating parishes. Now, this is not directly related to the lives of the saints, although these are from, this is from the life of one saint, so that's why I'm putting it here. But I thought this would be, um, before we close the the course, I wanted to bring this in. We have two or three references, three references here, probably many more, to the stance of the Bolsheviks with regard to the, our contemporary issue that we saw for the last year and a half in uh, the Orthodox Church. And this idea that during a pandemic, during a supposed pandemic, we have to refrain from kissing the priest's hand. Uh, this is a, a, a no-no, and don't kiss icons, and don't kiss priests. And this is reminiscent of the Bolsheviks. Let's hear what we read from the life of St. Arkadios. Uh, when he was in Solovki, the Soviets did not allow his visiting flock to approach him for a blessing because of the danger of infection. Natalia Ivanovna Orzhevskaya and others went all the way to Solovki. We actually see this, it's actually pretty interesting. We see this happening again and again in the lives of the new martyrs. The wives of the, of the priests or the spiritual children of the abbot or bishop make this massive trek from one side of Russia to the other to visit them in the prison in Solovki, which is in the far north of Russia, uh, in the, uh, on the edge of the Arctic Circle. And the, this is an, a podvig, an amazing podvig of its own, these women traveling so long uh, to serve and to, and to, uh, to see uh, their loved ones, their spiritual fathers, their abbots, their, their husbands. And they went all the way to see the Slovki in order to receive permission to see him, but they were not allowed even to receive a blessing from him. In a large room, two rows of tables were placed. 
At one row of tables, the visitors were seated. At the other, the prisoners. Between them, the whole crowd of guards were constantly walking back and forth, making such noise that one literally had to scream in order to be heard. Even in prison, they don't allow the people to have, in, uh, in, in the visiting room of a prison, they don't allow people to have any peace of quiet. And of course, they were not allowed to approach for a blessing because of the danger of infection. We read in the book, Red Priest, Renovationism, Russian Orthodoxy and Revolution, 1905 and 46, a scholarly book by Edward Rosloff, the following, which comes to confirm the life of the saint. Paris churches were often closed when they refused to register clergy or because of the threat of, quote, epidemics. That is, on the pretense of preventing the spread of disease by parishioners who gathered together for worship. So the demonic spirits who inspired all of these Bolshevik atheists to, to create pretenses and excuses for shutting down churches and preventing people's communion in Christ inspired them with this idea that they must not touch one another because of epidemics. Of course, it's all just a pretense and a lie, but it's interesting, isn't it? that we have a precedent in church history not too far ago, long ago, that essentially is very similar to our day. We have governments, the pretense of spreading disease, forbidding, or even bishops, God have mercy on them, forbidding people to venerate icons, venerate the priest's hands, venerate the relics, kiss one another in the temple of God on the pretense of spreading disease. Uh, we should really take this Think deeply about this precedent in our contemporary situation. One more before we go back to the lives of the saints. Uh, in particular, uh, this is from a book, uh, Long Way to Church, uh, The Medical Hazards Supposedly Caused by Common Communion and Kissing of Icons. As the 1930s progressed, godless propaganda evolved into the form and retained into the late 1980s. Public attention was directed to the medical hazards said to be caused by religious practice, including the spreading of disease through drinking from a common spoon or cup in communion and by kissing icons. Unbelievable. For example, in 1972, a U.S. apologist for the official Soviet position described the scene at Trinity Surges Monastery in Zagorsk as follows. Quote, with a rag, the priest periodically wipes the spittle from the pure silver coffin of St. Sergius. As pilgrims, mostly older women and others with their children, can continue, uh, continue, continue passionately to kiss the coffin. Soviet press recounted stories of babies dying of pneumonia uh, after baptism uh, by immersion. So... The Soviets and their apologists in America, because lest we forget, Soviet atheism and Western atheism, secularism on both sides, are two sides of the same coin. Demonic, uh, demonically inspired secularism, uh, which is a turning away from God. The, the, the turning away from God had different methods and and and. Uh, uh, ways of going about it in the East and West, but the spirit behind them were the same. That was the spirit of Antichrist. So secularism. So here you have a uh, identification of the two. Oh, we have a spreading of disease. Not surprising that we're seeing this come again 
uh, in the midst. So now we're going to see some videos and a little bit of patience because there, some of them are 10, 15 minutes. Others are two or three minutes. And these are from the website that I mentioned, Catacomb History, or rather Gregory Decopoliti, the uh, website on uh, YouTube. Uh, and I'll be reading it. So uh, follow along. You can follow along on screen and listen as well. This is a righteous priest, St. Macarios, uh, who reposed in 1931. I'm going to speed up the playback so we can... Oh, sorry. Should have done that. This is St. Macarios. He's pictured here with his family. July... 16th and 27th, Metropolitan Surgeons issued his notorious declaration, which formally opened the way for the anti-Christian authorities into the church. Over 90% of parishes in the Urals rejected Surgeons' declaration. The rector of the St. Seraphim Church, where Father Macarius was serving as the second priest at that time, was Father Alexis. <clears throat> During the first years of their serving together, he and Father Macarius had had peaceful friend relations. But after the declaration of Metropolitan Surgeons, frictions between them developed the Macarius categorically refused to commemorate the puppet of Soviet power, Metropolitan Surges, as the patriarchal locum tenens. But commemorated Metropolitan Peter of Krutitsa, who was at that time in prison. This difference in understanding of church truth and the true pastoral way led to the division of the parish into two groups, one supporting Father Alexis and the other Father Macarius. Finally, the parishioners came to the decision that the priest who had the majority of votes would remain in the parish. And since the parish was a very large one, more than 1,000 people, a general meeting was arranged in the church. The first to speak was Father Alexis. He rebuked Father Macarius for not recognizing or commemorating Metropolitan Surges, and thereby disobeying him as the rector of the church, and creating a division and a schism. And then Father Macarius took the floor. He explained to the believers that through his declaration, Metropolitan Surges had betrayed the truth and had entered into union with the atheists. The enemies of the church, for that reason, he could not commemorate him for fear of becoming an accomplice in the sin of betraying the church. This is why he did not agree with and could not serve together with Father Alexis. Finally, Father Alexis suggested to everyone that those who agreed with him should go to the right part of the church, while those who agreed with Father Macarius should go to the left. He was hoping for a majority. Since he had been a priest for many years and was the rector of the parish, but then something unexpected took place. The left part of the church filled up with parishioners, more than two-thirds of those present. Thus did the parishioners express their trust in Father Macarios, and he became the rector of the church of St. Seraphim. Immediately, a Thanksgiving Malevin was served with great prayerful enthusiasm. Many of the worshipers had tears in their eyes. It seemed as if everything, everything had gone according to the will of God, and the parish had been pacified. But the devil and the person of the Soviet authorities was not pacified. In order to force the prisoners to close the church, they imposed an unbearable tax burden on them and increased it after each payment. Usually the taxes were paid quarterly, but after a general meeting, the authorities decided to increase the tax each month. And first the parish somehow managed to pay the tax, but then the authorities began to seize the gold and silver visas and form and frames from the icons. Obviously, it's not, not able to read as fast as I thought. And together with the Gospels and other precious objects, as if in payment of the tax, then in 1930, they closed the church of the excuse that the tax had not been paid. By this time, Father Macarius had four living children, 
children living with him, his daughter Olga and Aisa, and his sons Vladimir and Nicholas, his eldest son Sergius, who was a reader in the village in Gorny Ostrog, and Orenburg region, lived separately. With his family, Father Makaris took refuge in a small old bathhouse, which had been adapted for living in. This had come about as follows. On arriving in Ordenburg in 1925, Batushka and Matushka and their children had settled temporarily in the house of three sister nuns. Then they had rented a flat from a window from a widow. However, the widow's son, who was a communist, had come and demanded that his mother throw the Pope, it should be Pop, I think, priest out of the flat. Meanwhile, Father Macarius had brought had bought a small plot of land with a bathhouse, intending to build a small house there later. They threw all the bath things in the bathhouse, all the Russian stove and benches, put a small table for meals, a bed for the parents, and a trunk with their clothes. The children slept on the trunk and the stove and sometimes simply on the floor. They were all in one room with their parents. This small room, which could be entered only one at a time, served as their kitchen, dining room, and bedroom. It was from this bathhouse that Father Macarius was evicted and taken to prison. The family lived on alms from the parishioners. They would creep up bringing bread and potatoes and furtively looking on either side as they entered the courtyard in case outsiders noticed them. The Kvitkins had no other kind of support since they were de deprived of civil rights, a category to which the families of clergy belonged. The bathhouse where they lived was located four or five blocks from the church. Every time Father Macarius and his children went to church in the morning for the liturgy or in the evening for the all-night vigil, they were met on the street by pioneers who threw sand and sometimes even stones at them. Batushka ordered his children never to reply to these pranks, but to walk calmly on, for they could not expect support from anyone. Just to pause here for a minute, when we're all lamenting our terrible situation, and many of us are in very difficult situations, I don't want to belittle anything, but when we compare it to what this priest was going through, what he had to go through in terms of exile and living conditions and threats uh, and, and, and mockings just to go to church every time, then I think we need to all give thanks that we're not in worse situations. And it's helpful spiritually to do that. From the time that Father Macarius remained alone in the church of St. Seraphim after Father Alexis had been voted out, it began to terrorize him and summon him to the GPU, the secret service, secret police his first summons was supposedly in connection with his non-commemoration of Metropolitan Sergius, his patriarchal locum tenens, and also because his rectorship, under his rectorship, the parish did not pay the, quote, lawful tax. The second summons was accompanied by a warning. If the parish did not pay the indicted indicated sum, they would close the church. The atheist suggested Father Macarius that since they would close the church, come what may, he should renounce God and his priestly rank in the columns of the district newspaper. Uh, it's important to say that the Soviets would not have said this, brothers and sisters, if there had not been such cases, right? We had, obviously, priests who were announcing their rank to avoid persecution. We read about one bishop uh, just a little while ago who uh, handed over all of the secret monastics and then hung himself. So this is the real the reality is that there's going to be always in every age a portion, perhaps a large portion, perhaps not a large, it depends, uh, which will apostatize, and there'll be a portion who remain faithful. The question is, what will we do? Each one of us has to prepare ourselves for trials and tribulations. Uh, one of the goals of this course is to familiarize ourselves with these examples 
and pray that God make us worthy of following them and ask their prayers that we also can patiently endure whatever is coming our way. The Soviet said to him, the Bolshevik said, he was to admit that he had drugged the people with religious obscurantism. In return, they promised him a place as a teacher, perhaps even as a school director. Father Makarios replied with a categorical refusal. Then they began to try and convince him that in this way he would save his own life and the life of his children. Again, this is classic demonic methodology, right? Threats and then promises and save salvation from what? Not from eternal damnation and hell, but salvation from prison, from exile, uh, from suffering. And this is exactly the spirit of Antichrist, which is coming on the world. Uh, the threats on the one hand to uh, or the promise on the one hand of salvation, literally church leaders have used this phrase, salvation from the, epi the, pan the supposed pandemic. If we just take the vaccine, and then on the other hand, now we have threats coming from the same people who are promising to us salvation uh, through the vaccine. Now we have threats that you're going to be shut out, and now they're beginning to make it mandatory. Here in Greece, they just made it mandatory for certain people in the government and other people, and they're talking about it making it mandatory uh, to have to take the vaccine. If you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose, and that's happening increasingly all over the world. So demonic methodology if we know the demonic methodology brothers and sisters we know where things are coming from we don't have to go and search and find out all the details of the medical and the scientific establishment if we have a spiritual life we understand from the methodology if something is from god father macarius replied that he did not fear death and that he entrusted his children to the will of god that he would never, under any circumstances, break the vow he had given to God. The Lord did not disappoint the hope of the martyr. All his children grew up to be honorable, believing, pious people. So true. So true. Good example for all of us. The Czechists advised him to think well about their proposition and to give them a final answer when they next summoned him. And so on January 21st, 1931, they came at midnight to search the bathhouse. The search lasted until four in the morning. So one room... <laughs> house, and yet they're there for four hours. Of course, they found nothing. Before leaving, Father Makarios said goodbye to his family, blessed his matushka and children, and was taken to prison on March 26, 1931. He was accused of being a member of the counter-revolutionary organization, the Trues, True Orthodox Christians, and of spreading rumors about the difficult times and the persecution against religion. Rumors, as he's being Called off to exile. He was sentenced to be shot in accordance with Articles 5810, etc. In the prison, they accepted rarely, but at any rate, sometimes small parcels of provisions and clean clothing. As always, on March 31st, Matushka, with her elder daughter Olga, brought a small parcel, but on that day, they did not accept it. And asking why, she received no reply. Then Matushka, Olga, and some other people who had also brought parcels for their relatives began to wait for the moment. And they would be able to hand over their parcels. And then at about three in the afternoon, all of them were driven away. The doors of the prison were open, and they let out the arrestees. Between 25 and 50 people, among them was Father Matthias. And seeing his wife and elder daughter, he waved at them from a distance. He looked completely healthy. The group was led to the building of the GPU and taken inside, while the relatives who ran after them were ordered to go home. 
They were told to come the next day at nine o'clock and everything would be explained to them. But some did not obey and surrounded the GPU building waiting. They were given several warnings by the, by the guards and then some of them were arrested. Among these was the wife of Father Macarios and his daughter. Having held them in the basement until morning, they were given a certificate saying that Father Macarios had died in prison. Then they were very severely forbidden under the threat of arrest, not to tell anyone where they had been and what they had seen. Father Macarius' wife asked, where is the body of my husband? I would like to bury it. The prison boss who issued the certificate swore and said, there's nothing to worry about. Soviet power will give him the burial he deserved. Then he ordered them to go away before it was too late. Then they learned that this group had contained basically the priest of Orenburg and the surrounding district who had been most popular among believers, as well as some steadfast true Christians who had got in the way of Soviet power. Just, I don't know if this is totally applicable, but it just occurred to me, you know, here in Greece, I don't know if this is happening in America, but when someone dies supposedly from COVID, they refuse anyone to touch the body. They put it in a, they wrap it in a um, heavy nylon and they bury it with a, with a closed casket. And of course, in the Greek or in the Orthodox tradition, generally we don't close the casket. We have it open. They venerate the very body before it is put into the grave. So this is a grave departure from Orthodox tradition. And there's been a few occasions where people have actually been arrested because they refuse to allow the body to go in, uh, saying that the body is dead. And therefore, the supposed virus is also dead. And I want to see my uh, loved one and confirm that this is my loved one that is being buried in this coffin. Uh, and so I think this is an interesting totalitarian stand from the government, supposedly in out of, uh, of a desire uh, for people not to get COVID. Uh, you've seen these ridiculous scenes of, of people dressed from head to foot in white, uh, you know, like a, like, like, like they're going to some kind of uh, war uh, covered head to foot with, with face masks and all the rest so they not get sick from a dead body that's in a coffin uh, and as, they, as they take him to burial. And so this whole, whole psychological warfare is carried out against the people uh, and they're at the moment of the death of their loved ones who supposedly many times we know here in Greece, there are many examples, friends of ours who said, yeah, we signed, they made us sign it that they died from COVID. We know they didn't die from COVID, but they made us sign it. Or they paid my friend 8000 8, it was 800 8, 000, I forget the, the amount, in order to write that he died from COVID. So, so there's a tremendous amount of pressure and, and lying going on surrounding the COVID issue. And here you see the same spirit, the same uh, father of lies, uh, and not allowing people uh, access to the bodies, of course, because they've been murdered uh, by the uh, Soviet power. Uh, and you go on. And all these people who, who the previous day had been healthy and fit would walk calmly and quickly from the prison to the GP building. Suddenly the next day, quote, died in prison, a fact that was confirmed by certificates given out to the relatives. Later, the rumor spread secretly that all of them, had been herded into a basement room in the GPU and gassed. That was why nobody was given to any, uh, no body was given to any of the relatives. The reality, however, was that Father Macarius was shot that night. 
at 4.30 in the morning. In this way, he gave his life for the true faith as a steadfast martyr and a true pastor, loved by his parishioners, a true faithful server in the pastures of Christ. Many miracles were performed by St. Macarius both during his earthly sojourn and after his martyric death. May we have his holy prayers. So that's a bit lengthy, but I think it gave a very good insight into several aspects of uh, our, uh, our, our subject tonight, which is how 1930s our saints lived and how they reposed for Christ. Now, this is another collection of short stories. Very interesting, very impressive. Pay attention uh, as we go through this. Uh, the Church in the Deep Wilderness, stories uh, from uh, Soviet-Russian deep wilderness. Amazing. One of these stories is, is just out of the Desert Fathers of the fourth, third and fourth century. So pay attention. And the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place having been prepared by God. Revelation 12, 6. How can this not be seen as a fulfillment here? Uh, the church absolutely fled to the wilderness of the Soviet Union, the vast uh, Soviet Union, the vast mountains and places of Russia. Hiram John the Romanian, this is actually St. John the Romanian. He is an incorrupt body. It's, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the same person we're talking about. Uh, incorrupt body, and in, he was a ascetic in Jerusalem. Uh, told a story, I think this is who we're talking about. Uh, told a story related to him by a refugee from Russia. Archimandrite Athanasius. This Archimandrite had been in a Bolshevik prison awaiting death with one other prisoner. This prisoner told how he had once been hunting in the woods of the Caucasus and had accidentally come upon a whole group of Christians, including a bishop, priests, and deacons who had not seen another Christian for four years. Another story, Hiram Monk Anthony from Tolevsky, Tol Tolshevsky Monastery served secretly from one house to another he tontured many into monasticism. 1942, he and three monks dug out an underground hut in a shed and there constructed a church with an altar. It was a secret monastery. Three monks lived with him, Father Raphael, Father Gabriel, and Father Angelist, old men whom he had tontured into monasticism. And they were such workers. They never left the dugout and slept there. There's actually pictures online if you want to go to this article. Uh, at uh, catacombhistory.blogspot.com. You can see the pictures of the monks. An Australian, an Austrian former prisoner of war witnessed that in 1948, Soviet authorities discovered a secret woman's monastery 200 kilometers from the prisoner of war camp in the forest of Siberia, not, not far from the Arctic Circle. A sentry found a small settlement of dugouts where 22 nuns, mainly elderly, were living. The monastery had existed for 30 years without anybody knowing anything about it. The arrested nuns used to pray, Lord, defend us from the Antichrist. They were sentenced to 10 years in a corrective labor camp for non-registration, non-payment of taxes, and non-fulfillment of laws concerning school and work obligations. Amazing. The, the, the nuns lived for so long in such conditions. In the early 1980s, a small secret community of Manassas was discovered in the high mountains about 60 kilometers from Sukumi by the KGB. 18 Manassas managed to take shelter in a cave. The pursuers in a helicopter threw a cask full of burning liquid into the entrance and set it on fire. All those hiding in the cave perished. 
Their names were, and he gives the names there. God, and we have their blessing. God help us. Their prayers. During the persecution of the church and its clergy in 1923, there came to the caucuses a holy recluse, Elder Makarios. He appeared in the territory of Vladikavkaz in the desert, deserted place 20 miles from a small railroad station by the name of Podgorny. He was from central Russia, but no one knows exactly where. The territory where he chose to dwell was in the foothills of the Caucasus, in a deep forest of gorges and cliffs. He dug a cave for himself where he lived and also had a small church. The altar table was hewn out of the rock, and there were a number of icons. It was all very poor, and yet everything necessary for divine services was there. Elder Makarios conducted services in this church. When the local people found out about him, they began to flock to him. There they would receive confession and Holy Communion, and the elder would also provide for their other spiritual needs. The number of his visitors constantly increased. With a short time, he was receiving pilgrims almost every day. Elder Makarios was 65 years old, a genuine ascetic whom God glorified in answering his prayers and granting him the gift of clairvoyance. He would tell people their secret thoughts and deeds. The elder would always meet his visitors about two miles away from his cave and would then conduct them to his dwelling. No one forewarned him about their coming. He would discern it in his spirit. True pilgrimages began to take place. People coming from the vicinity of Kuban and local towns, the believers found there a spiritual repose and they felt that they were cared for. After all, there were almost no churches left in the entire area, and people were as sheep seeking shepherds. Father Makarios lived in seclusion until 1928. In this frightful year, the Bolsheviks decided to put an end to his church. They had known about it for some time, for some reason, and never reached it. At last, they came and arrested the holy recluse. They wanted to take him away secretly, but the believers found out about his arrest and rushed to see him for the last time. As Father Makarios was walking away under guard, he blessed the people on all sides and bid them his final farewell. This holy pastor of the persecuted catacomb church was finally martyred in the far north. Proto-priest M. Donetsky relates that in the foothills of the Caucasus, not far from Soki, there was a state dairy farm. It was an exemplary. It was exemplary. Much was said and written about the farm in the local newspapers as about one of the best farms, state farms in the country. But in 1937, at the beginning of the Terror, the leadership of the farm and all the workers were arrested. Some of them, including the director of the farm, were shot, and others were exiled to the north. It turned out that the director of the farm was a bishop, while the workers were priests and monks. They were accused of concealing their social position and providing secret religious services for the nearby stanitsas and farmsteads. It is possible this farm was formed out of the monks of the Randi Monastery, in which several monks from the Novia Fon had taken refuge after the closing of that monastery. If so, then the bishop may have been Bishop Nikon of Sukumi. In the life of Saint Antonina, the abbess, her life is included, by the way, in the life in the books uh, in the Catacombs Saints of Russia. When her time of sentence was over, a group of twelve nuns formed a monastic community under her direction and went to the town of with the aim of founding a secret skeet high up in the mountains. In those days, many monks from the ruthlessly destroyed monasteries hoped to settle in the mountains as hermits to avoid persecution from the Bolsheviks. But the minds of the GPU were sly. They placed their secret agents disguised as forest rangers all over the mountains, and one by one they discovered the secret skeets and dwellings of these hermits. Almost all of them were shot on the spot. 
When Abbess Andonina climbed up to the top of one high mountain, she met a monk from the seat where Father Arsenios was living. In that wind-slept, craggy wasteland, way up high, far removed from the world, she discovered a whole monastic settlement with caves and churches and enough provisions to live and serve God daily for some time. The monks were there, there offered to help, and at once set about digging caves beneath the roots of high tree, huge trees, which became dwellings for the nuns. The monks lived in similar dwellings. They likewise constructed a church there and with joy helped the nuns in their needs. But this hidden community was not to last long. Soon both skeets were discovered. Out of the 14 monks, only one, Father Arsenios, who was the youngest, was spared and not shot as were the others. He was exiled for eight years to a concentration camp far away in the uttermost Siberia. And upon completion of these eight years, he was sent to a settlement in Alma Alta. At this time, Abbas Antonina was also arrested with all her nuns. She was not shot on the spot, but exiled to an unknown place. After the Second World War, there circulated in Russia, in Russian emigre circles, a brochure entitled, Why I Also Believe in God. In it, the author, originally an atheist pilot, describes how he was commissioned to track down a group of monks and priests hiding way up high in the Caucasus. Caucasus Mountains. Must have been as late as the outbreak of the war. One day he spotted a ragged group of them on a high plateau. plateau. Upon seeing the plane, they began to run. The pilot clearly saw how they, apparently fleeing in the direction of their hiding place, were actually heading towards a wide chasm which separated them from the rest of that mountainous plateau. <coughs> when they reached the abyss, they made the sign of the cross, and to the pilot's utter astonishment, they continued running in the air until, having safely reached the other side, they disappeared from sight into the rocky cliffs. The dumbfounded pilot was instantly converted and came to believe in God, who had hidden his faithful slaves from the eyes of evil men, but it allowed him to be a witness of the great miracle of Russia's catacomb saints for the salvation of his soul. If you remember from the life of St. Mary of Egypt, walking on water, but also in the lives of the Desert Fathers, we have the same phenomenon. Of course, St. Peter, uh, the apostle walking on water. So this is something that, by the grace of God, those who are far, far progressed are able to do. It's an amazing, amazing story. From the life of Ladika Peter Ladigan. After many years of suffering for the faith, the Holy Bishop, along with 25 members of the Confessing Church, set off for Central Asia. This was 1944. They prepared themselves to flee in the mountains. They bought seeds and collected icons and service books. At night, they stopped for the Chinese border. They set off for the Chinese border and for eight days traveled through deserted places. They struck camp on a high plateau in the Taiyan Sheng Mountains of Kyrgyzia and built a skeet within 12 cells at the church. They lived according to the strictest rule of the skeet of St. Andrew on Mount Athos and slept only three hours in the 24, praying without ceasing. Seven years passed, during which nobody disturbed their isolation. But a spiritual son of Vladika, Father Mishail, suggested to Vladika that they should go further into the mountains. And Vladika replied, No, I have to finish my life, but you must pass through the school of suffering. The monks were expecting arrest every day. On November 22nd, 1951, the Feast of the Mother of God, the quick hearer, she was quick to hear, the liturgy was served, and all the monks received Holy Communion. They then saw an airplane in the sky. 
it had spotted them. Vladikavir was the first to be taken away. He was sent under house arrest to Vyatka province. During his life, Bishop Peter united various groups of catacomb Christians on the territory of the Soviet Russia. In his time, he ordained many secret priests. Vladika Peter was blind for five years before his death. He reposed in complete isolation on February 6, 1957, at 3 o'clock in the morning in the town of Glasgow. He died sitting in a chair with his arms raised and his fingers in a blessing position. He decreed in his will that he should be buried without a coffin, according to the Athenite custom. He was buried in the city of city cemetery. On the grave is, is a short inscription. Here lies the servant of God, Peter. Catacomb believers who took look after this grave witnessed that there have been cases of healing from illness after prayers at his grave. In 1951, VK wrote, in the inaccessible parts of the Caucasus Ridge, in a huge basin protected on all sides by a wall of mountains, the tops of which were covered with snow for 10 months of the year, there was a settlement of Hermans. They had a cave church where oil lamps and candles burned and services were celebrated continuously. A council made up of several higher monks and priests was led by Bishop M, who ruled the colony and maintained links with other underground groups scattered throughout the USSR. The colony was so secret that not even many of the underground groups in Soki, Sukumi, and other cities of the coast knew about it. Thank God for such witnesses to our faith. Now, from the witness of a father and his son, son is retelling the lives that they led in Soviet Russia. Very interesting. First-hand account from the son on the right. This is the father on the left. Sergius Denisov's picture to the left, and his son Gregory on the right, describes their life in the kingdom of the Red Antichrist. There was already no church to go to because the priests were renovationists, surgeonists. We began to gather in our homes and pray. We didn't go to the elections. That was a sin. They didn't let us go to the school because they taught atheism instead of the law of God. We didn't go to the army because there was no point defending the atheist. We went to prison. We were arrested. Many preachers who had been blessed by Vladika St. Varos were shot. And so were we without, and so we were without constant links with Orthodox bishops and priests until 1954 when we met the catacomb priest, Father Michael Rozdetsvensky, who reposed in 1988 in the camp. In 1936, a relative and neighbor came to us and said, Sergius Stepan Stepanovich. Get away, they've come from Ryazan to arrest you. My father went to another village. They came in the evening. They arrested one brother from the fields while he was pasturing the cattle, and the second in the evening after work. They condemned them for struggling against Soviet power and said to them, Patriarch Tikhon was an anti-Soviet, and John of Kronstadt was also against communism, and you are with them. They were condemned to be shot. But my father was in hiding from the authorities from 1936 until his arrest in 1944. There was a hole under the stove, and he hid it. He hid in it if any stranger arrived. In 1942, they came again to make a search. They knocked. We were all sleeping. Father hid under the stove and began the search. The children of the executed brothers were living in our house with their mothers. The NKVD came, man came up, my little brother, he was sleeping, shook him and said, get up, behold, 
The bridegroom cometh at midnight. Christ has arrived. Then he began to throw down the icons. He kept on throwing them down and broke the lampadas. The brothers' wives, Tatiana and Efrosini, were arrested and later shot, while their little children remained crying. In the morning they came to take the icons, but were managed, we managed to hide a good icon of St. Nicholas on the roof so that they didn't find it. And so we prayed with a single icon. We would take it out, pray, and hide it again. That same night, they took my father's sister. She had two girls. They got up, and their mother was gone. When the NKVD agents left us, father said, we must go to my sister. The girls were there, locked up in the house, crying. We took them, too, to our house, which became like a children's home. The young people in the village were stirred, stirred up against us. They came and broke our windows. We were even forced to fill up the window with bricks. It was the same in other villages. If you had to find a believer, then you looked for windows blocked up with bricks. That meant they were believers. Once the young people came to our house and began to throw everything out and break it, but then they calmed down and left. They dug trenches, trenches around our house. They said, this is collective Soviet land, and you don't have a right to go here. Well, we laid down planks and walked over the, over the trenches on the planks. Then they began to stop giving us anything in the shop. Then one Saturday night, just before the war, my brother shouted, Papa asked, what's the matter? He said, just now, it is this, as if I was standing in a church, and Nicholas, the man of God, threw a sword among the people, and the sword fell and began to thunder. Father wondered, what could this mean? Probably there would be a war, and he was right. The war came, and we had some alleviation. They gave us ration cards for flour, and the Germans began to smash the communists. The wives began to ask for crosses. Communist wives. More people came to the faith during the war. They sent us a letter from Metropolitan Sergius. He wrote that we had to defend our homeland. Well, this was dictated to him. Then they came at Christmas and began to make a search. They found the burial place, quote-unquote, burial place under the stove where my father had been hiding. He was not there that time. He was in another place. They said to my brother Peter, get ready. They wanted to torture him to find out where his father was hiding. They took him and went into a village where some bootleggers were having a drink. They gave my brother to an old man to guard, but he fell asleep. My brother immediately crossed the River Don to another village where our believers were. Then the colonel gave his men a rocket. I'm not sure what that's referring to. Well, then, then came my turn. They took me. If some sorrow is about to happen, my heart always beats and I cry. Now some kind of melancholy took hold of me. And sure enough, we woke up in the middle in the morning, read the prayers, and were beginning to read an akathist when there was suddenly a knock at the door. We opened up and three people came in, the president of the village, Soviet, and two commi commissioners. Well, they said, how are you? Who's off offending you? And they themselves began to make a note of the icons. Then they called me to rest me. But my brother pushed me, saying, run. So I rushed off down the hill, and they fired at me. I ran about five kilometers, sailed across the river, sailed across the river in a boat, and ran to the house of my female relative. 
but they took my brothers off to a children's home. I went to live with my father who was hiding with some people. In 1944, at the end of the war, they exiled all the believers from Lipetsk and Ryazan regions and gathered them at Lebedyanka station. They took the people out of their houses at five in the morning. They gathered up to 5,000 of them. They were praying and reading Akathist on the station. As for us, it was just before my father was rounded up. We were hiding in the burial place. We sat and watched as the next day was dawning. Suddenly, a friend of mine from the village of Berdekino, Sergius Malkov, who later became a catacomb priest and was recently died, climbed down into our, quote, burial place, which he knew about, and said, come out. They've already taken them away, them all away. We climbed out, and then we went to live in another place, in the oral region. At first, we lived in a garret, a, a, a attic. But in the, in the winter, we moved to a pigsty. There was one piglet there and seven people. The president of the collective farm found us there and arrested us. People gathered and bawled at us as if we were wild animals. We were taken away to a prison in Orel. There were 10 people in the cell, including priests. They began to interrogate me. And they released me because I was an adolescent. But the others were put on trial. The investigator said, well, say goodbye to your father. Papa began to weep and said, pray to God, son. They gave all of them 10 years, according to Article 5810. They were sent off to cut timber. I went to a relative. There they had also begun to pray in secret. A nun, an elderly priest came, and they prayed with us. In 1947, I was arrested. The investigator said, look, you're a pilgrim, a sectarian. You don't go to church. We're going to condemn you. Of course, the church he's talking about is the one, the very few left under Metropolitan Sergius, and later uh, Alexei. When they condemned me for the first and second time, they showed me a journal of the Moscow Patriarchate. Look, they said, Metropolitan Sergius recognizes Soviet power. And they condemned me and 15 other people from our community. We were, we were accused of religious agitation and of being against Soviet power. The defense counsel asked Grandfather Basil, look, you, Basil Mikhailovich, have named Saint uh, John of Kronstadt, and you spoke about some kind of beast which came out of the sea. He said, I will not bow down to beasts like Karl Marx, Lenin, and Stalin. After a consultation, the procurator said that Basil Mikhailovich should be shot. But they gave him 25 years and me eight years. Also gave many gave many years to the others. But one of them said, I'm not with him. And they asked him, are you for Christ? But he said, no, I ask forgiveness. Well, they still gave him eight years. For God is not mocked. We were sent off in convoy, but my father had already been taken to Abez. When Papa was being taken in the convoy, he prayed and crossed himself. And priest Michael Rozdedvensky, on seeing him, said, I am a priest. The Lord counted him worthy to be with him in the camp. And then we were looked after by him in freedom. Father Michael also said, It is wrong to go to the Soviet church because they have signed the declaration. Father John from St. Petersburg was also in prison with us, and a true Orthodox priest from Ufa. He was Hiram of Mark, 
he is already dead. Later in freedom, we also had higher monk Elias. We went to him. The city of Bogulma. Then the Tartars beat him up badly, and Father Michael went to give him holy unction. When I was in camp in Vorkuta, Hiramonk Eugene was there. He was given five days in the punishment cell for confessing the Trinity there at camp. And I was given five days in the punishment cell for not going to work on feast days. Nicholas Agathonich had his beard forcibly shorn off by shoulders, soldiers. In accordance with Orthodox custom, he had refused to shave it. When Stalin died and my boss began to weep, uh, weep, but the prisoners shouted, hooray, hooray. My father was released in 1954. And I, after that, I found my father in Unza, or Kobni. He was in exile there. We went to live with relatives. Very quietly, links between the surviving catacomb Batushkas began to be established. We were looked after by Father Ignatius of Voronezh. Some of his nuns live there now. Father Nikitas was in Tambov. There was another Father Nikitas in Kharkov. We sent our confessions to Father Michael. A nun went to him and he sent back the holy gifts. Father Nikitas of Kharkov sent the gifts to the camp. He said, commune on such and such a feast and I will read the prayers of absolution here. Father Michael Rozdesvensky said to us, while I am alive, stay with me. But then if the Lord prolongs the time, he will send you an Orthodox priest. Father Michael said about our life before we met him, but Padre was very good, like a monk's. There was love, only you didn't have enough priests. He also said, there in the Soviet church, you will perish, but here you will be saved because he who goes to the Soviet church from ignorance may perhaps receive grace, but he who knowingly receives communion will receive it to his condemnation. But not all those there will perish. And not all those here will be saved. At the judgment, our works and our love will be examined. In the 60s, a commissioner came and offered me to become a deacon in the Soviet church. But of course, I did not go. Regarding Gregory's father, Sergius Denisov, it is written that he lived to be, to be 90 without once being united with authorities or crossing the threshold of the Sergius church. He lived a special, different life, even refusing to have a Soviet passport. More information about Sergius Denisov can be found in the video Holy Communion and Raining Fire, which is also on the Gregory Decopoliti YouTube channel. And one of the final ones here before we close. Lessons from the Gulag, One Cannot Serve Two Masters. Regarding Theodore Goncharov or Goncharenko, Anatoly Krasnov Levitin, who was incarcerated in the Garilovo Poliana camp together with Theodore wrote. By the way, this this Levitin is one of the main <coughs> sources for uh, all of our information on the renovationist. He was a renovationist initially, and then he was uh, imprisoned later on. He was a sort of uh, uh, outspoken, in, but but in in a guarded way, uh, an author and, and and a writer about Soviet life. So, 
uh, he's, uh, he's often quoted in, uh, in these sources as a source for many of these uh, of our information about mainly the renovations, but also in, his, in prison. He lived in Kutor. His father had managed with great difficulty to get himself out of the collective farm. By the time of the war, his son Theodore had grown up. He was exceptionally religious and very firm. Both under the Germans and under the Russians, he categorically refused for religious reasons, reasons to enter the collective farm. At first, he received three years for not being able to pay his taxes. He refused to work in camp, quoting the words of the gospel. One cannot serve two masters. In camp, he received another term, 10 years for sabotage in accordance with Article 5810. For his refusal to go to work, he was often, often beaten to the verge of death. He got a yet another term, 25 years. I have been with monks from my childhood. I know this group of the population thoroughly, but perhaps the strictest monk of all those I have seen, I, I have seen, I met in camp. And he was, moreover, a simple, illiterate layman. That was Theodore. He categorically refused to take a mattress and underwear from the storeroom. He slept on bare boards. He prayed all through the night, every night, on his knees, making prostrations to the ground. He was very strict faster. He was barely literate, but it was difficult to believe that when one looked at his nervous face edged with a black beard and his expressive burning eyes. His face was radiant with thought, inspired, gleaming with the inner light. He did not want to work, but there was no resentment in him. It was from deep principle. One cannot serve two masters. If a friend would ask for him for something, he would immediately do it. If someone was in trouble with something and did not ask for help, he would go up and do it. When it was necessary to clean the barracks, he was the first to run for water, clean the floor, seep and scrub. This was not for the bosses. It was for the comrades. For a long time, he refused to write a petition for his release, but when they wrote for, wrote for it, when they wrote it, for a long time, he did not take it to the bosses, but then, nevertheless, they took it to the boss of the camp. The reply came in three weeks, exonerate him and everything, release him. He lived in the village with his sister during doing handiwork. He was counted as an invalid. In 1958, he corresponded with the victim. Nothing more, nothing more is known about him. So one small witness to the spirit of freedom and non-compromise with the world. Uh, this is one more, but I'm going to let you all go and watch it for yourself because our time is passing, and I, I want to open it up to questions. So this is a, a very – well, let's watch a bit of this. Let's watch a bit of this, but we're going to probably have to cut it short, uh, and then we'll go to the um, last couple slides. <clears throat> Yuri Belov writes, in prison I met some Orthodox priests. Most of them were true Orthodox priests. Two of them were unforgettable. Father John and Father Michael. They did not recognize satanic authorities and did not want to hide that fact. On the contrary, they went along the Volga, village to village, preaching salvation would come to the world only from the struggle with the Bolshevik devil. They called on people not to work for the Bolsheviks, to go into the woods, not to serve in the Soviet army, and not to read satanic newspapers and books, since through them and through the cinema and radio, a great deception comes. Krivshit, Krivushchev, 
Now it's 1980, serving his last 10-year sentence at the age of 80. Alinin also is not yet free. He is now about 63. If a Czechist or just a warder appeared, he would make the sign of the cross all around him and proclaim, Get out, Satan! Out of my sight, Bolshevik filth! He absolutely refused to talk with them, said to, that if everyone rejected these commissars, they would not remain in power for even a year. Sofia Mikhailovich Kazakov, Kazakova, an ancient member of the catacomb, an active member of the catacomb church until her death in the early 1960s recounts. It was in the 1930s, and they were closing the village churches at the time, making them into warehouses, laboratories, or sometimes clubs where they held dances. Our village priest, Father John, was forbidden to serve. He refused to sign the Declaration of Metropolitan Surges. First, he was expected to be arrested, but then our villagers from the village of Novya Buan Samara region began to hide him. There were still a lot of believers at that time. The people got together and decided we would have a secret church in Novya Buyan. The services took place at night, and there was quite a few people. Admittedly, this didn't last long. Someone denounced us. Judas's will always be found. Our Batushka was arrested, and not only him, they arrested several chanters, including me. A Czechist asked, who thought up this idea of building an underground church? That's how they put it, underground. One of our older villagers, being interrogated by the investigator, replied, Methodius the Blessed said, when the enemy comes, the church will be saved in the mountains, the dens of the earth, and the deserts. And so we went under the earth. Nobody ever saw Father John again, but the prisoners were released about after about three months in detention. There were many wanderers in the Volga region at the time. At one time, we had two living in our house, Father Theodore and Father Alexis. That's when we, what we called them. They had nothing, neither passports nor personal effects. And as a rule, they lived with us one at a time in turn. One would come and the other would immediately get up and leave. It was evidently impossible for them to live together. The Czechists were searching for them. They hounded them. And once they arrested Father Alexis, and it happened that I, who was a young woman at the time, was entrusted with taking him on a cart into town. I agreed. When we had left the village, I stopped the horses on the edge of the wood and said, Run, Father Alexis, go away. We never saw him or Father Theodore again. I was locked up for a few days in a guard and then released. What more will you get from me? I remember that Father Alexis was very learned in the scriptures. He read us the Apocalypse and explained to us what he had read, especially chapters 12, 13, and 17. He said, Our mother Russia will have to suffer much. The disorders of the commune will not end soon. It will be the, in the end of the seventh. But don't expect anything good in the eighth. <clears throat> now, there, the, the, the speculation here that this seventh would be the seventh general secretary, Gorbachev. That's one reading. I, I'm wondering if this is not the seventh millennium, uh, which is we're at the more than two thirds of the way through. I don't know. Just a thought. I don't know what the seventh could be. It could be the general secretary. It could be something else. Proto priest Vladimir Iv Ivanovich Kasyenev served in the village of Bolshi Berenzinki. Simbrinsk province. He was related through his wife to the poet F.I. Tuchev, Tuchev, 
I, I'm sorry, these, these words, are, these, uh, I'm butchering all these, these names. And over the procurator of the Holy Synod, the family of Father Vladimir was large and friendly. There were nine children. <clears throat> Father Vladimir served in the largest church of the village, which had four altars. On great feasts, the service encompassed all four altars. Father Vladimir read the canons for Christmas and Pascha in 12 languages, which astonished everyone. At his house, there assembled congresses of priests. They came with their families and lived there for weeks. For Christmas and Pascha, three tables were laid with places for 12 people on each. And for three days, the doors were open for everyone. The intelligentsia also came, and the richer and the poorer peasants. The family had two cows, two horses, and poultry. Batushka was friendly with Maturin and had a beautiful garden. Batushka was good at sewing and cooking and was an excellent housewife. They were dukalakized three times. First, they took their livestock, then the furniture, then their house. But each time they recovered. The people used to say, Batushka is helped by God. Everything with him is not with, as it is with us. He was arrested several times on various excuses. In 1932, he was cast into prison in Saransk for refusing to renounce his priesthood. In prison, they forcibly cut his hair in Holy Week, and he died on the night of Pascha. His fellow inmates brought Matushka his watch and boots and said, Batushka looked at his watch. He said, Christ is risen, and he died. Hiram Basil was born in about 1860 in Sizran, Samara province. After 10 years of happy married life, he decided to leave the world. He revealed his desire to his wife. She was silent for three days and prayed. After all, they had 10 children. On the third day, she got together a knapsack and firmly said to her husband, Go, if God needs you, save us by your prayers. And Basil set off for Mount Athos to St. Pandalaman's monastery. He remained for three years. After the revolution, he was sent back to his homeland to arouse repentance in the deceived people. He began to live in an abandoned basement on the outskirts of the village of Trotskoy, Sizran region. After a time, he was revealed to the villagers, and from that moment, his service as an elder began. He lived for six years in the cold basement until the villagers built him a little izba and asked him to move there. They had gift, he had the gift of healing and foreknowledge, clairvoyance. He was arrested at the end of the 1920s and returned from prison in 1930 on crutches. His leg had been paralyzed in prison, which is why they let him out early. He died in 1934 or 35. During the Khrushchev years, Father Innocent used to serve some catacomb nuns in Suzda. He himself was from Astrakhan, Astrakhan, and had neither passport nor documents, but only a certificate from a psychiatric hospital. But he was completely normal, although he was able to imitate a mentally ill person very well. Uh, let me stop here and add that on this, in this website, there's also a, an article which, uh, which, uh, is called Concerning Orthodox Victims of Soviet Psychiatric Torture. Uh, and it uh, talks about how the Soviets would send many times priests and clergy into these psychiatric wards, considering them to be insane because they believe in God, and that they would, they would spend decades, in fact, there are some stories there, their entire life, in uh, psychiatric treatment, and they would be shut up with drugs, it would be mind-altering drugs. So 
unbelievable, unbelievable uh, satanic persecution. Also something that has been foretold by our elders in our day, Athanasius Metelineos, elder Athanasius, said that they will use in the days of Antichrist mind-numbing drugs, just like in the Soviet time. This is why the Soviet time is indeed a type of the end times. And they will use drugs and they will do terrible things to the mind through the drugs they've created to those who refuse to bow down to the Antichrist. And that's why Elder Athanasius says, flee, do not stay, but flee. And indeed, this is what the image of the church is in the ancient, in the uh, end times, is a woman fleeing into the wilderness. So these are all things we need to have in mind, brothers and sisters, if we're going to survive days of persecution that may be ahead of us, may be ahead of us, may not. We don't know exactly the end times of the end times. Only God knows. But we see the signs, and there are many. He used to describe the terrible things that Kirov had done in Astrakhan. I'm probably butchering that. So he himself survived because they buried him in the kitchen garden. For example, in Sibrinsk province, they would put priests in barrels, put nails into them, and throw them down the cliffs into the Volga. In the Al Alatri monastery of the Archangel Michael, the whole brotherhood was driven into the Alachka stream and drowned there. Their bodies dammed the river for a time. While the innocent was old, he could no longer see well, and for that reason he was detained in Suzdal. But he wanted to go to the other side of the Volga to a skeet to die. There they knew him well and invited him to join them. The services with the nuns were monastic. Sometimes they served the whole night, reading in turn. During the day, they cultivated vegetables and gherkins and very tasty tomatoes. The nuns were from the protection and deposition of the sash convents and other monasteries. They commemorated the Tsar and Patriarch Tikha and called the Soviet patriarchs betrayers of Christ and servants of the Antichrist. So I want to reiterate something that we had in last session to remember what the point here is, one of the, the core of what the catacomb church represents. So we avoid the tendency and the temptation of legalism and not looking at things in a spiritual manner in a manner which is freeing and salvific. Remind, remember what Father Seraphim said. Significance of the catacomb church does not lie in its correctness. It lies in its preservation of the true spirit of orthodoxy, the spirit of freedom in Christ. Surgeonism was not merely wrong in its choice of church policy. It was something far worse. It was a betrayal of Christ based upon an agreement with the spirit of the world. And this is the most important line here. It is in the inevitable result when church policy is guided by earthly logic and not by the mind of Christ. And this is totally 100% applicable to the last year and a half of this COVID narrative, this COVID insanity. Church policy must not be guided by earthly logic, but by the mind of Christ, which alone keeps the church free. And you see in the stories we just heard, what it means to be free in the midst of the Soviet Antichrist. Tremendous determination, tremendous trust in God's providence, tremendous perseverance and patience in prayer. This is what the sons of God, the sons of freedom, teach us what we need to aspire to. 
And we end today's talk with the Traparian of the New Martyrs of Russia. All you blossoms of the spiritual meadow of Russia who have wondrously flowered in the years of first fierce persecutions, numberless new martyrs and confessors, royal passion bearers, hierarchs and pastors, monastics and laymen, men, women, and children, who in patience have brought forth good fruit unto Christ. Entreat him as the one who planted you, deliver his people from godless and evil people, and that the church of Russia be made firm by your blood and sufferings unto the salvation of our souls. Amen. Amen. Amen.